Hi, I'm Gil Jessup, and I'm reading to you today from 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambas oppose Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because... As in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Well, I'll add my welcome as well. Uh, it's great that you're able to join us uh, together as we're looking at this part of God's word. Uh, how about I pray? Uh, now that we've heard God speak to us through his word, it is a right response that we come to him in prayer. So please join with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, now that as we read it, you would please help us to concentrate uh, and you would remove distractions from us, um, that you would speak to our hearts and that we would listen and that you would change us and transform us by your word to be more like your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. If I were to ask you, what do you think the future will be like? What would you say? Maybe you're thinking of plans that you might have that at the moment you can't do, like going overseas, just driving around the country, maybe even spending Christmas with family. For some of you, when you think of the future, that might mean finishing school. You love to finish the HSC, get into uni, experience what it's like to have some more freedom over what you're doing. Perhaps you're thinking more seriously about work, maybe thinking about marriage, children, or maybe a bit further down the line, thinking about downsizing your house since all the kids have moved out. Maybe spending time with the grandkids, enjoying your retirement years, or maybe none of those things appeal to you and there's other things that you'd like to see in the future, like maybe you'd like to live on Mars, which is probably not too far away. What will the future be like? That's the question that we'll be looking to answer today. And there's two answers I want to suggest from this passage of Scripture. So make sure you've got your Bible open in front of you and you can follow along and that you can hold me accountable to what the Bible's saying. Make sure that I'm not just making things up. So the first answer that we're going to look at to our question, what will the future be like, is people will love themselves, which is found in verses 1 to 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, that's probably not quite the answer you were hoping for, was it? Now, after writing to Timothy about what godly leadership in the church should be and the sort of character he should possess as a minister of the gospel, which is what we looked at last week together, Paul warns Timothy of what life will be like in the future. So have a look with me, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. He says, But mark this, 
there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, when the Bible uses the phrase, the last days, it means the period of time beginning at Jesus' resurrection up until the time of his physical return to judge the world. So that whole period of time, which so far has been about 2000 years, is what the Bible calls the last days, which is the time that we live in right now. So for example, in Hebrews chapter one, when the author says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. These are the last days. And Paul writes that in these last days, there will be terrible times. Why is that? Devastating bushfires, raging pandemics, lockdowns, stay-at-home quarantines, riots, wars? Well, no. What does he say in verse 2? People will be lovers of themselves. What's the reason for difficulty and hardship for Timothy as a Christian minister? People will love themselves. The implication of this, which is said again in verse 4 further down, is that people will love themselves instead of loving God as they ought to. Now, just before this section, at the end of chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy that he should not be quarrelsome, that he should be able to teach, gently instruct his opponents, in the hope that by God's work, they will turn from their sin and come to a knowledge of the truth, escaping the trap of the devil. Now, in that description, there's certainly a weightiness to his job that he's given to do, but it sounds almost like an ideal situation. Timothy gently instructs and corrects, and hopefully God intervenes, people repent and come to know God and be saved. Sounds great. Sign me up. But, begins chapter 3, but it's not going to be easy. Paul says it's going to be terrible. It's going to be difficult. How does that make you feel? Does that description that we see in God's word fit with how you see the world? Now, living in Wollongong in particular, I find it especially easy to forget this, that God's word promises difficulty for the Christian. Especially staying at home at the moment, it's so easy to have my thoughts confined to just what I see every day. Inside my house, maybe going to the beach for exercise. I'm not sure what it's like for you, but for me, it's very easy to just kind of exist inside my little world. I need God to remind me every day of what the world is really like and the real dangers that exist, even if I can't see them or experience them every day. But there will be terrible times in the last days, God warns us, because people will love themselves instead of loving God. And really, if all I think about is what I can see and what I experience on a daily basis inside my little lockdown bubble, then surely I'm in danger of loving only myself. Now, looking at our passage, verses two to four, are kind of bracketed by love. So have a look with me. Verse two, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. And then further down, verse four, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, of course, this indictment of those who love themselves isn't speaking against the need to rest and to care for yourself. 
people sometimes use the language of loving yourself in that way. And it's a right thing to care for yourself and the mortal body that God has given to you so that you can love others better and more effectively. You don't care for your body just so you can love yourself more. And what God is speaking against here is when we place ourselves on the throne of our hearts, as it were. That's what it means when Paul says, lovers of themselves. When I, what I want, becomes the law I live by. When I am on the throne, or my desire for money or for pleasure, when those things rule my life, instead of the one who rightly should be ruling, the Lord Jesus, who created us and sustains us. And all the other sins that are listed in uh, these few verses here can be understood as specific outworkings of our love, if that makes sense. If I love myself first and I think, well, I'm the one who should be in charge and call the shots, of course it makes sense that I'm going to be boastful and proud, that I'm not going to be thankful for what I have. I'm not going to honour my parents. I'm not going to treat other people with gentleness. I'm not going to love other people because I love myself. Paul's particular focus is warning Timothy of what to expect of other people as he ministers the gospel and as he entrusts the gospel to the next generation. And I'm sure Paul has in mind in particular that there are some who claim to be Christians or even having positions of authority or are teachers of other Christians who possess these awful qualities as well. Which is why Paul's command comes so strongly in verse 5, he says, have nothing to do with such people. Now, I don't think Paul is instructing Timothy to keep one and a half metre distance from anyone who has any of these characteristics. If that were the case, Timothy would never be able to leave his home. I wonder what that would be like. But especially since above in chapter 2, as we've been looking at last week and uh, through our series, Timothy is instructed to correct opponents with gentleness, which he can't do if he stays away from them and never talks to them. It's not that kind of have nothing to do with that Paul is concerned about. What Paul is concerned about is being associated with people or being in partnership with these people. Now, Paul writes a similar thing in his first letter to the Corinthian church. So if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Paul says this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Now, this isn't a sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That might come next term. But the point I want to highlight is Paul's serious concern about people who deliberately live in willful rebellion against Jesus while claiming to live with them as their king. It's backwards and dangerous. Here in 2 Timothy, especially on view, are those who are supposed leaders of the church, have nothing to do with such people, and rightly so. These are not the sort of people to entrust the teaching of the gospel to for the next generation. They are not the sort of people 
who entrusted Timothy with the gospel. Which is why, as we'll see next week, Paul goes on to write about his own life in verse 10 and following, urging Timothy to follow his example, not the example of the wicked men described here. What will the future be like? People will love themselves. That was our first answer. And our second answer, people will oppose the gospel, which is from verse 6 to 9, the end of our section we're looking at today. Now, in verse 6, Paul kind of zooms in a little bit to a, a subgroup within the people who will be lovers of self that we've seen before, particularly talking more about those who claim to be religious, but really are false teachers. So have a look with me at verse 6. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. These people use their position, their power, their influence to get what they want, the fulfillment of their evil desires. The image of gullible women in particular being used to show that these false teachers target people who they will be able to easily manipulate for their own purposes. These teachers, Paul says, are in verse 7, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now that same phrase, knowledge of the truth, is used earlier in chapter 2, verse 25, um, where Paul says, turn the page, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. That is, the knowledge of the truth, or knowledge of the gospel, which is God's true message, comes ultimately from God and is a sign of someone's repentance, which is also from God. They're turning away from sin and turning to Christ. Yet these teachers have no knowledge of the truth. Some teachers they are. These teachers who are supposed to be in position of teaching others, of shepherding God's people, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, have no knowledge themselves. They do not know the gospel. Verse 8, they're opposed to it. And if you know anything about the sorts of things believing the gospel entails, really, that makes sense. When someone who is swayed by their evil desires, who loves only themselves, who manipulates and controls people, who hears Jesus' words in Mark 8 where he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. There's no sitting on the fence. If you're not doing what Jesus says, you're against him. You're opposed to him. Just as these evil men are and many others like them. Paul, in verse 8, in the first part of verse 8, compares them to Janus and Jambres. I have no idea if that's how you pronounce their names, but that's what I'm going to go with. Who he says opposed Moses. Now, if you were to search through your entire Bible, you wouldn't find those two names anywhere apart from this verse. So, who are these guys? Well, according to Jewish tradition, which Paul and Timothy and many others would have been very familiar with, they are the names of two of the magicians 
serving Pharaoh in Egypt whilst Israel was in slavery. So to have a look at sort of the scene that Paul is drawing from, turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus 7 verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded, that is, that Pharaoh should let Israel go. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians, and who also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Why would Paul go here to describe these false teachers? What's the significance of those men? So these teachers who have no knowledge of the truth, who manipulate and control people, who may, from verse 5, appear to be godly from the outside, but really are opposed to the gospel, these men, Paul says, are just like the Egyptian sorcerers who actively work to keep God's people in slavery. In that case, not slavery to Pharaoh, but to sin and love of self. Have nothing to do with such people. Now, I doubt there are many people who regularly attend our church here who also listen to people like this. But maybe you do. Maybe you have in the past. Maybe you know people who listen uh, to those teachers. And there are many false teachers around today like this, particularly, not to stereotype, but often coming out of mega churches in America, uh, and they certainly have some influence on many churches here in Australia. The best way to be sure about what you're listening to is to have your Bible open, to check that what they're saying is what the Bible says, not just quoting verses here and there, but are they actually going through the passage? Are they trying to speak God's word faithfully? Are they trying to handle God's word rightly, as we heard last week? And as you're listening to them, think about the question, what gospel are they teaching? Here at Wollongong Baptist Church, we aim every week to preach the biblical gospel. The risen Jesus Christ is Saviour and Lord. But there are many other gospels out there that don't focus on Christ, on the one who suffered was crucified, died, and was buried. In their gospel, Jesus is there, surely. But the focus, the main point, is on me. It's on the self. As if, when you trust Jesus, you will be healthy and happy and wealthy and wise, and all your relationships will be fine. All you have to do is have faith. Or even, possibly a perspective that the gospel is purely therapeutic, we all have something missing in our lives. And when we trust Jesus, our lives are made whole again. Now, at one level, that's true. Our lives without Jesus are missing something. Life. But do you see how even that way of describing it makes the gospel about us, rather than about God and his love for us? Even in this letter, in 2 Timothy, in chapter 1, Paul writes that the gospel is because of God's own purpose and grace. And it's about Christ Jesus. It's not about us. In his letter to the Galatians, 
Paul speaks even more strongly against false teachers than he has here. In Galatians chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me, Galatians 1, verse 8 and 9. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, once said in a similar vein, If you meet a system of theology which magnifies man, flee from it as far as you can. And Paul says, have nothing to do with such people. Now, he does finish this section in uh, 2 Timothy 3 with a message of some hope. He says in verse 9, Just as the deeds of those Egyptian men were proved to be foolish as God brought them to nothing, so too will God reveal the foolishness of false teachers. So where does that leave us? As we've looked through our passage, as we've heard that there will be terrible times in the last days, because people will love themselves, they won't love God, and they will oppose the truth. We've heard God's warning about false teachers in these last days, that we are to have nothing to do with them. But what does that all look like? Now at the moment, when it feels like we spend 90% or more of our time at home, only interacting with people through a screen, where should God's word take us from there? Well, first, don't be someone who loves themselves or who loves pleasure rather than loving God. Secondly, stay away from those who claim to be teachers but really are opposed to the true gospel message who are only concerned about what they can get for themselves. And both of these points, I think, can be brought together by thinking about and critically assessing what you feed yourself every day. What are you taking in that influences and shapes how you relate to others and the circumstances around you? If, for example, you spend all morning waiting anxiously for the 11am press conference to hear what the day's COVID numbers are, and then afterwards scrolling through people's responses, reading every news article and journalist prediction and theory and opinion on how New South Wales is going to get out of lockdown or what vaccination rate is going to secure our freedom, or if you spend more time worrying about coronavirus than praying about it, may I gently suggest that you do something to change that. When you are reminded of the terrible times of the last days that we live in, where should you turn? What should you feed yourself? Surely it should be God's word, which is more precious than gold, sweeter than honey, Psalm 19 tells us. To see these things from God's point of view, to rest in his sovereign hand over all of it. Don't turn to false or shallow teachers who might just tell you what you want to hear or speak just from their own thoughts. But hear the words of, for example, the author of Proverbs, where he says, My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it.
or the words of Jesus. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. If all you were to feed your heart is worry, anxiety, speculation, conspiracy, then that's what's going to come out. Instead, turn your ear to God's words. Keep them within your heart. Meditate daily on God's goodness, on his love, on his mercy, of the salvation and sure hope we have in Christ Jesus. And your mouth will speak what your heart is full of. Peace, love, gentleness, truth. And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we do thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us and that you sustain us every day. Lord, we pray that in times of anxiety or worry, when we see the terrible times of the last days, when we see the love of self that many have, when we might feel our own love for ourself uh, rising in us, Lord, we pray that we would turn to you, Lord, that you would calm our worries and anxieties. Father, we, we thank you so much for your word, for the community of brothers and sisters that you've given us at church. And Lord, we pray that you would speed the coming of your son, that the Lord Jesus would return soon, and that all things would be made new again. Amen.